Good morning, church. We are in that sense because forever he is glorified. We are called the church of the resurrection. We are uh, people who celebrate not just Easter one day a year, but every day of the year because every day we remember that Christ is alive, that he is with us, that he has promised never to leave his church. And so the, that song we sang this morning, we say, forever he is glorified, forever he is lifted high. It says, forever he is with us. And so my prayer is uh, that even today you will continue to have the experience of, of uh, the risen Christ speaking to you. Uh, as we gather together uh, weekly, we gather around God's word. We gather to sing and express as Lori has encouraged us this morning, but also to hear from God's word into our lives. And at times we'll study a book of scripture, one of the books of the Bible, and just open it up and say, okay, what is it saying to us? And other times we will look at a topic or an issue that we're dealing with in our lives through the lens of scripture and say, what does scripture have to say about this? And this morning, we begin a seven-week sort of journey into understanding what Scripture has to say to us in matters of life and love, whether we are people who are in a a stage of life as as married people, whether we are people who are single, we are all uh, sexual beings, and so we want to understand, okay, well, what does God speak to us about that part of our lives? And so over the next seven weeks, we're going to spend time doing that. You're going to have time in your home groups uh, to discuss some of these things and how is this uh, affecting me? How how am I... uh, perceiving it, receiving it, what do I need to do in my life based on what the Word of God says about this? So one of the things we're going to do every week in addition to your home groups having time to do that is we're going to have a Q&A near the end of the message every week. Uh, Just take one or two questions every week. It also helps me know kind of where you you are at. You can text those in to Pastor Tony. His number's there uh, in your bulletin. and it'll be up on the screen later. And so uh, I know with these kinds of questions, maybe people don't want to be public. So you can just say, Tony, don't say who this is. He never says who your name is, right? And you won't do anything bad with his number, okay? So just uh, please promise me that. We'll have time to dialogue. And it really helps me understand, okay, where are we at together? How are we working through this together? And some of the blog posts that we'll put out during this, uh, the next seven weeks will also be in regards to the stuff that we're studying on Sunday morning. The premise of this, of this uh, series really is to understand what God's plan and God's design is for this part of our lives. My guess or my assumption maybe on being a human being like you, uh, whatever life stage that you're in, uh, whether you're someone who's married, whether you're someone who is single and maybe thinking you're going to be married or single and pretty sure you're not going to be married, or maybe even someone who's been married and you're not married anymore, um, as you're thinking about this stage of your life and trying to process what does God have to say about this and how am I living life through this, I think we all want two things when it comes to matters of our, our life stage and love, is, is to be fulfilled in life, whatever stage we're in, and to have no regrets. To have a deep sense of personal fulfillment and satisfaction with where we are and to have no regrets. And I think uh, that is a universal experience. No matter what, nobody wants to uh, regret the things that we've done. Nobody wants to kind of make decisions that later on we go, why did I do that? And we all want a sense of personal fulfillment, even if we're not exactly where we want to be in a certain life stage, that we would still be completely fulfilled in that place. Because in a sense, I suppose we're always not quite where we want to be in life. All of us want more of something in our relational life, whether we're married or single. And so to have that deep sense of personal fulfillment without regrets, that's the premise and the hope of this series as we understand what God's will is for our lives. Now, maybe you're at the very early stages on in this. Maybe you're a young person, maybe you're single and you're kind of thinking, oh, okay, I might get married at some point in time and uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to figure out what's gonna happen. Maybe most of your years are still to unfold in, in that area. 
Some of you, maybe more of your ears are behind you than are ahead of you. You see more in the rearview mirror than perhaps you see ahead of you. It's possible, I suppose, as, as I throw out this sort of premise of no regrets, that maybe some people early on the stage say, okay, great, that's good, I, I hope to have that. But maybe for many of us, we'd say, well, that's too late. <laughs> I have regrets. What do we do about that if we, if we say, okay, well, this is what God's plan is. Does that mean I've just missed God's plan and now I just have to live with those things? Let me put something out to you that I've seen in my own life and in the lives of others that I've been privileged to walk alongside them throughout the past few years, is that the most important day in your life with God is today. C.S. Lewis said, the, the place where eternity intersects time is in the present. The past, we cannot change. And no day in your past is more important than today. No day in your past, whatever, whatever you did, trumps the importance of today. The future is unknown to you. So today becomes the most important day in your life with God. And the decisions that you make today will one day be a part of your past that in your future you can say, I have no regrets now. And so even if we were to say in big and small ways, I have regrets in this area of my life and things, and as you promised that, I think I already missed the boat. Today, you have an opportunity to head in a different direction that one day will allow you to say, I don't have any regrets anymore. And, and this is what I've experienced. I have no way of proving this and saying, this will always happen, but I know what I have seen in my life and in the lives of others, that today, as we begin to move in a different direction, somehow the power of God reaches back into our past and begins to heal the things that we cannot change. I don't know how he does that. I just know he does do that. God is not just the healer in the present time, but as we begin to say, okay, okay, God, I can't change the past, but today I want to know what you have to say. Today I want you to lead me in a different direction. And my prayer is not just that one day this part that is present will then be my past that I won't regret, but also your hand of healing will reach back into our past. Amen? We all need that. So that is our hope in God as we enter into this um, process. Now, some of you are looking for the real juicy stuff. Sex, we're gonna get into that in a couple weeks. This is more of a PG message. We might get to ones that are a little less PG, but it's just so heads up. So if you have kids, junior highs, you guys are good. You guys should know about this already. Um, but, and, and maybe you wanna know, okay, let's, are we gonna get to the controversial stuff? Yes, probably, but for today, I wanna start with the place, and look, there's no silver bullet when it comes to relationships and love and marriage and singleness and sex in our lives. We all know that. There's no one thing that if we just get that right, everything will be fine. It's not that simple. But there is one thing that we must start with. It's, it's the thing that, we, if there is a silver bullet, it's this. It's the thing we have to begin with, and that's what I wanna to start today with. And that thing is what I'm calling TPOH. How many of you remember the band TPOH? Kind of an average Canadian band, right? I'm not offending anyone, right, by that? The, the name of that band is based on something actually that Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence penned in 1776. And I know we're not American, most of us, but you know this statement. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and TPOH, pursuit of happiness. There isn't an arena in our lives 
where we pursue happiness more or where the idea of the pursuit of happiness is the ultimate goal than in the area of love. Is that not true? In fact, our generation, those of us alive today, and certainly those younger than me and maybe the new generation coming into this stage where they're going to be pursuing life and love, holds happiness and relationships above anything else. In fact, the younger generation looks back on previous generations, maybe some of our generations, and says, you guys were too obsessed with money. You were pursuing money, and that got you nowhere. Or you got it, but it wrecked everything else in the process. And so there's a disenchantment with the pursuit of wealth in this generation. But love and the hope of love and the expectation of love and free sexuality and all of that is tied up in this thing that we call the pursuit of happiness. Ultimately, what everybody is pursuing in this aspect of their lives is happiness, fulfillment, pleasure. It makes sense. It's the word so often used. And what do we, what do we, what, how does every fairy tale romance end? What words? Happily ever after. Happiness forever. All of what happened in the trials and the tragedy of Cinderella or whoever it is ended in love forever. Happily ever after they lived. And every romantic comedy, I know very few of you have seen them. None of you guys have, I know. I've seen one or two just out of the corner of my eye. The implication at the end of the film, usually, is happily ever after. There might have been trials and ups and downs, but by the time they got to that point, we don't have to actually continue the movie because we know they finally got together and they realized and they were, you know, it was like you've got mail and they were ships passing in the night. And then they've discovered love and that's it. And now happily ever after. The challenge is, in my humble opinion, and what it would seem based on some data, that the pursuit of happiness is actually what's killing our relationships. Happiness is the word most often used. I was talking with my neighbor the other day, and, and we were talking about, he was talking about friends he knows and family members. He says, it's like everybody's getting divorced. But then he said, well, you know, but you know, if they're not happy, what are they going to do? It's probably better if they move on. Right, because if you're not happy, that's not a good place to be in life. You can't, can't be in a marriage if you're not happy. And, and you're not, probably not gonna be a good parent to the children if you're not happy, so need to move on from that. Happiness is sort of the ideal. It's what, it's what every married couple expects to pursue, expects to get on that day that they get married. And yet, the pursuit of happiness is actually what is splitting these things apart. Leslie Newbigin, who was a bishop in the Anglican Church and spent many years in India, said it this way, and it's a bit of a complicated quote, but stay with me because it's so profound, and I'll, and I'll unpack it for you. He's talking about capitalism and, and, and the economy in Western culture and its effect on the family. Here's what he says. The family is precisely the place where non-capitalist values have to be learned, where one is not free to choose his company and where one is not free to pursue self-interest to the limit. Because capitalism pursues the opposite goals, the freedom of each individual to choose and pursue his own ends to the limit of his power, the disintegration of marriage and family life is one of the obvious characteristics of advanced capitalistic societies. Here's what he's saying. He's talking a little bit about Adam Smith, and we've talked about a little bit about this before, who uh, economic theory said, look, if each person, talked about the invisible hand that moves the economy. If each person pursues their own gain to the greatest extent without any limit to their personal freedom, not only will they succeed in creating wealth, but it will create wealth for the whole economy. 
Okay, if, and, and so this is why we say like, let people innovate, let people um, dream, let people pursue their, their freedom and their intellect as much as possible. Create companies and environments where individuals are free. And the more free they are to pursue their own gain, and if they are motivated to succeed personally, it will not only create success for themselves, but it'll create success for everyone. And to one degree, that has worked. It is what has driven our capitalist economy. But Newbegin says this, if you take those values in the workplace and bring them into the home, the home will disintegrate. Because in the home, in marriage, each one is not free to pursue their own interests and their own values to the greatest extent without limits to their personal freedom. In fact, the opposite is required to make marriage work. Each person must, sur must surrender their own rights and their own freedoms for the good of the other. Each person must actually lay down and use their um, freedom to serve another person, not to pursue their own gain. In fact, many times they will have to sacrifice their own gain for the good of the other person. And yet, because even though we think we're separate people at work and home, we're not. And so when we're driving for capitalism, we're driving and we're allowed to pursue our own gain and our own wealth as much as possible outside the home, and we come into the home and we still work as people who are pursuing our own gains. What happens to two people who are pursuing their own interests to the greatest extent without any limits to their personal freedom? Complete fracture. And so Newbegin so profoundly observes every place where capitalism thrives, marriages die. The pursuit of happiness is killing our relational life. I was reading this week um, about a study that was done, was one done in McLean's a couple of years ago, but then more recently in some, in some um, American universities and colleges about the epidemic of depression, anxiety, and sadness in the lives of university and college students. This, that group of people, which today are more sexually free than ever, are more encouraged, like that's really the stage, they're of age, they're, they're adults, and they're free to pursue without commitment, sort of sexual pleasure, sexual freedom. That group of people is having epic levels of depression and anxiety. A study at um, University of Alberta, 1,600 students, over 50% of them reported feeling hopeless and, ha and having feelings of overwhelming anxiety. Over 50%. In Cornell University, one of the most prestigious schools in the US, Ithaca, New York, where the, the bridges that go into the university, they look out over these beautiful gorges. One of the things they do every September as students come in is they build those big fences around them because people are throwing themselves off those bridges. Now, that's not because they're sexually free, but if sexual freedom was actually achieving happiness for, the, for them, wouldn't that be the happiest group of people in society? And yet, actually, we're having epic, epidemic level reports of anxiety, depression, and sadness. The pursuit of happiness is not actually working. It's working against us. You'd say, well, so are we not supposed to pursue happiness? Isn't that just an instinctive, like, this is just a human instinct. Of course, there's a degree of self-preservation that's connected to the pursuit of happiness. But if the pursuit of happiness is ultimate reality for us, it will end in destruction. TPOH will kill you. The good news is that God is pursuing a very different H in your life in my life. While we are pursuing happiness, God is pursuing a different age in our lives. And understanding this is the thing, the beginning point to understand and perceive and receive everything that is happening to you in your life 
as a married person, as a single person, and as a human being with sexual desires. Understanding this is the key to receiving and processing everything else that's going on in your life. And I want to read two passages from Scripture for you to unpack that. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, and then Hebrews 10. And the Ephesians 5 passage comes at the end of a letter from the Apostle Paul. Don't read ahead. Come on, listen to me. It comes at the end of a letter that Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus, and at the end of most of his letters, he starts to say, okay, if this is who Jesus is, if this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that God is redeeming and changing the world through Christ, what does it mean for your life as a worker? What does it mean for your life and your family? Always. He ends most of his letters like that. So here's what he says in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present to himself a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And then in Hebrews 10, 14. Because by one sacrifice, he, that is Christ, has made perfect forever those who are being made happy. Holy. God is pursuing holiness in your life. We are pursuing happiness as the ultimate goal, and God's ultimate goal in your life is holiness. Now, some of you are like, oh, this is exactly what I expected to hear in church. God doesn't want me to be happy. He wants me to be holy. Now, we're going to address a little bit of that later, but let me just say this once. Those two things are very connected in God. And John Piper, one of the pastors, is a pastor out in Bethlehem Baptist in Minneapolis, has helped me understand this in ways like nobody else. And so I want to read just a quote from one of his blogs. Somebody wrote on his website, sorry. <clears throat> Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.11, of the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Blessed means happy. So Paul is saying the glorious gospel, the good news of the happy God. God is infinitely happy because he is infinitely glorious. And the good news is that he invites us to enter into his happiness. Here's what John Piper writes in The Pleasures of God, page 26. It is good news that God is gloriously happy. Nobody would want to spend eternity with an unhappy God. If God is unhappy, then the goal of the gospel is not a happy goal, and that would mean it would be no gospel at all, because gospel means good news. But in fact, Jesus invites us to spend eternity with a happy God when he says, enter into the joy of your master. Jesus lived and died that his joy, God's joy, might be in us, and our joy might be full. Therefore, the gospel is the gospel of the glory of the happy God. It's not that God is not happy, nor that God does not want us to be happy. But as we hold up happiness as the ultimate goal in life, we will miss it. God has a different pursuit in our lives, ultimately which, result, which will result in us sharing in his happiness, which is infinitely more inexhaustible than ours ever could be without it. How do we do that? If you look back in, in that verse in Ephesians 5, Paul's talking about husbands and wives, right? Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. So somehow Paul is using this analogy of marriage or marriage in a sense as a window through which to see the love of God for us, his church. And he says, God's love for us means that he wants to make us holy. He wants to make us holy because he loves us. That is his pursuit 
in our lives. Now, what does it mean to be holy? First of all, this comes from the idea that God himself is holy. You know, we sang that song earlier, you are holy, holy, holy. Matt Redmond wasn't just getting bored and didn't know what else to say after the first holy. In scripture, it's the only attribute of God that is repeated three times. And in ancient literature, the repetition of a word means I'm saying it so you can get it, so you can know a holy upon holy upon holy. It doesn't say God is love, love, love. God is merciful, 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 although he is all those things. But it says this one attribute of him is repeated every time it says it. You are holy, holy, holy. So of all the things God is, he is first and foremost holy. And holy means two different things. First of all, it means you're completely other. To say God is holy means, God, there's nobody like you. Your love is like no other love. Your mercy is like no other mercy. Your justice and your love for justice is like no other. Your purity, your, your thinking, your ways, they're so much greater. Holy means to be cut away and cut and a cut above. That, that phrase comes, it's the idea of holy. God, there's nobody like you. You are unparalleled, you are unimpeachable. And it also implies a purity. Not as, and this is, has, you know, has become negative in its connotation. We say someone's like a holy roller. It means they're kind of holier than thou. This is not. This is pure as pure. It's pure as beauty is beautiful. The purity of God. In other words, whatever he is doing, he's doing it rightly. He has no impure motives. He has no selfish motives. He has no twistedness inside even his goodness that makes even his goodness a little bit tainted, which is true about everybody else in the universe, that God is not only unlike anyone, but he is completely pure. <laughs> and then it tells us that holy became a man. God didn't just leave himself as holy, holy up there. Somehow we could maybe see him with a distant eye, but he came into our world, Jesus, the man, God, to show us what holiness looks like in a human being. Aren't we thankful for that? Otherwise, we would never know what it looks like. And so when Christ came, he had a righteousness about him that was still so approachable. He was so beautiful in his ways, but he wasn't that made other people feel bad about themselves. People wanted to go towards him. He had such a love for truth and justice and yet mercy for all of the people that fell short of his perfect standard. And his reserved his harshest words for those that were unmerciful. That was the holiness of Jesus that we see. And even more profound, the scriptures go on to tell us that God has a goal in your life and my life to make us like Jesus. So that's the connection. God is holy, unlike anything else, completely pure. He brings his son Jesus into the world as the holy man to show us what holiness looks like. And then he says, this isn't just some great example that you were nice, it was, you enjoyed looking at for a while, but good luck, you'll never be like that. No, my goal is to make you more like my son. You are all the rest of the children in my household and I wanna make you like my eldest son who is holy. So that's God's pursuit in our lives to make us holy, which means there are some things in life that God wants to show us, wants us to display, wants us to adopt, and other things he wants us to get rid of, right? If God is completely holy, completely without sin, he wants to rid us of sin. 
And yet God has all these other attributes, his beauty shown in his mercy and his love and his wisdom. And he wants to give us those things. He wants us to display. So holiness means there's some things that are gonna fall away in our lives that he wants to get rid of and other things that he wants to give us and, and create in us. Now, what does this have to do with marriage, singleness, and your sexuality? It means this. You have to understand that everything that is happening to you in your life is God's agenda to make you more holy. We are pursuing happiness, <laughs> bent on it, and God has an even greater, stronger pursuit of holiness in your life and my life, which means the things that are happening to in your life are engineered by God in order to make you more holy. Now, you may feel as many things happen to you in your life, you may go, you're frustrated because this isn't making me happy. This is making me frustrated. Why is this happening? Because God is trying to make you holy. You got married, those of you who are married, you got married for happiness. I've seen all these couples that are about to get married or just got married. I already burst their bubble in the room, so it's, they're not under any illusions. They understand. As you get married, you get married for happiness. You can't help it. And be, why? Because you're expecting, you know, you we're, we're MFEO, we're compatible. I, know some, I said that the other day and people were like, what is that? Have, have you ever seen, sleep, was it from Sleepless in Seattle? We're made for each other, right? That's why you get married. <laughs> you're laughing, you didn't know this. It's a terrible movie, don't watch it. <clears throat> <laughs> That's why we get married. This person's gonna make me happy. I love how I feel when I'm around them. We're so in love. We have so much in common. That's why we're getting married. And suddenly you realize, what's wrong with this person? They are now making me unhappy. <laughs> how is this person who was supposed to make me happy, now you're making me unhappy? I thought I was a really good guy until I got married. And I was like, what's wrong here? Like, what? What's wrong with you, Jen? All of a sudden, marriage starts to bring out all this stuff in me that I don't like to see. And it's making me unhappy. And if I think that marriage is about my happiness, I'm going to miss the fact that my wife is actually a mirror that God is using to reflect back to me things about me that I could not see before. And if I don't get that his goal is holiness, and I think this is just about happiness, what am I going to do? I'm going to be grumpy. Many of us are just grumpy in our marriages. We haven't left, but we're just grumpy. Because God is exposing in us our unholiness that he wants to change. Or if we take it to the extreme, ultimately when a marriage fractures, in many cases, when people say, oh, we're just not in love anymore. What does that mean? Well, we're not happy when we're with each other anymore. And some people even say, you know what? I'm happier without them. I'm actually a better person away from them. Because I've concluded happiness is the goal and now we don't have happiness anymore. We'll even have to move on. And so we have a culture that, has a, that, it is, that is moving on at an alarming rate, higher than any culture before us. Because we've held up pursuit of happiness as the greatest goal. But as we understand, as people of the book, as people of God, Wait a second, God is actually engineering things in my life to make me holy. He said, Vijay, you got married for happiness, but I got, I got you married for holiness. I wanted you two to get together. I tricked you. You got swept away. And I am in love, okay? So I'm still being swept away. But now, you know, those of you that have been married now, you know, when you said you loved your spouse so many years ago, that was cheap compared to what it means now. You understand. 
And God says, you had this goal, but I have a deeper goal. And I'm going to use this person. And, and now, for those of you that are married, the primary arena of refinement where God is going to make you holy is in your marriage. Forget sitting here singing songs of faith to God. You have to submit to his will and his way in your marriage because it is making you more like Jesus. And you can come to church all you want, but if you resist holiness in your marriage, nothing's gonna change. Because that's his goal. It's not the pursuit of happiness that he's interested in. You'll get there if you go his way. As a single person, you're praying prayers. Maybe you thought, maybe, maybe you're planning on getting married at some point, but it's not coming through the way you hoped or it's not happening fast enough or it's not unfolding in the way. If happiness is your goal, you may be tempted to stay in a relationship that you shouldn't. You may be tempted to date or explore your sexuality in ways that you shouldn't because you're trying to be happy. As you understand, waiting for the person God has for me, following his plans, his ways that says, no, sex is reserved for marriage. So if you're not married, you're not having sex. Let me say, that, that's hard. That doesn't make me happy. Yeah, but God says it's gonna make you holy because I teach you patience. I'm gonna refine those desires away from you that think it's love, but it's actually lust because you just really want something that the other person can give you. I mean, that can happen even in marriage. Quite frankly, when we talk about sex later, whether you're married or not, our view of sex can be one that's actually the pursuit of happiness or we're understanding God wants to make us holy. If you begin to see everything that's happening in your life through this lens, and young people look at before you, as you get into those stages in life and you start to see what's going on, it's a complex world. It doesn't get any easier the older you get. We don't really know much more than you guys do. <laughs> but as we know this, God is doing these things in my life to make me more like Jesus because my true source of happiness comes from becoming the one God has made me to be. It will help me understand disappointment. It will help me understand other people. It will help me understand why, because there are things we're gonna talk about in the next few weeks that you'll say, that doesn't make any sense. Why would God tell us to do that? And there are many people who reject, you know, ever, ever, isn't it funny to me how people question the historical authenticity of the Bible? Oh, you know, it's been changed. Do you know what, I sat in history classes where we read Plato's Republic we read Aristotle, books that were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old, and nobody ever said, how do we know Plato really wrote that book? Well, that's been changed. Oh yeah, my mom told me, I read an article in Time Magazine, Plato's Republic's not Plato's Republic. It's been changed many times. Nobody says that. You know, the Bible has more historical authenticity as a historical text than any of those things that we read. Caesar's Gaelic Wars, nobody ever said, that never happened. Why do people question the authenticity of this text? Because they don't like what it says. And if I can discredit what it says, I don't have to do what it says. And there are things it will say that will go, uh, really, is that what it says? And if my goal is happiness, I will say, God, I can't do this. I cannot do this. I can't stay in this relationship. It's making me unhappy. I can't leave this relationship. I need it to be happy. If our goal is happiness, we will not be able to do what God is. If we understand, wait a second, you have a different goal in, in my life. You're trying to make me holy and you're using this situation, whether I love it or not, things that are happening that I expected or not, you are using things to make me holy. Now just quickly, you know, some of us, maybe are, are walking alongside people or maybe you've been in an abusive relationship. If you're in an abusive relationship, God's not using that to make you holy. You need to step back from that. Let me just say that so there's no a lack of clarity around that. 
It may not mean you need to walk away from that forever, but you need to step away first, right away, so you don't get hurt. But how we ask God and talk to God about what's happening in our relationship, say, God, you're doing something in this. You're trying to make me holy. How is that happening for me? Now, there's two big reasons that we'll keep. So, so we're going into this over the next few weeks about God's design for us. And that's why we're saying, okay, God, you are holy. You're not like me. You're pursuing something different in my life. And your pursuit actually is even stronger than my pursuit of happiness. And you're trying to do this. So I need to know your plan. But there's two things that will keep you from embracing God's plan for this parts, these parts of your life. One of them will say, well, this doesn't apply to me. We have this funny thing of thinking that we're all, how am I doing with time? We're good. That, that we're all unique. Oh, my story's so unique. You know, if God only knew, like if God, okay, I know God says that, but he, he means these people, but my story's very different. And if God kind of knew my story, there would be this exception clause. And isn't there an exception clause? Because I'm kind of one of them. We're not. Our stories are different, but they're not really unique. That's why millions of us can watch the same movie about one couple and laugh. Because it's a reflection of our own lives. We can read books on marriage, or we, someone talk, I make a joke about husbands and wives, and you laugh, why? Because there's so much of it that's a universal experience. The details may differ, but we're so similar. We're all human beings. That's why we can study brain and behavior and put out studies, because you know what? Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people act and think very similarly. And so the details may be different, but don't say, oh yeah, I know God said that, but that applied to these people and not these people. Your story's not really unique. God has written things in here that are for all human beings. And you know what's so amazing to me? These things were written thousands of years ago. And yet there's so much wisdom that applies to us today. Which means this isn't just for a certain culture or a certain type of person or a certain life stage or things that went actually perfect for everyone. I'm like, yeah, well, that's for the perfect couple, but I'm not that, we're not that. Well, that's for someone who's made this kind of decision, but I've made these ones. No, this will keep you from receiving God's plan if you say, well, that's not really for me. So I challenge you to put that excuse on hold and listen and say, maybe you do have a design for my life that I have not been aware of and I need to listen. The other thing that will keep you from embracing God's plan for your life is say, this is too hard. I can't do this. I can't live up to this. In fact, I've spent most of my life falling short of it. And now that you've told me that that's the plan, I just feel worse. <laughs> Look, every time God reveals his plans for us, every one of us on one level goes, <sighs> I can't do that. I haven't been doing that. I spent my whole life doing the opposite. God doesn't reveal his plans to us because he expects that that's what we've been doing all along or that it's easy for us to do. That's why we have Jesus who has made up all of the gap that is lacking in our lives. But the one thing we can do is say, God, I don't, I, I don't know if I can do this, but I would love for you to do that in me. If that's your way, I want your way in my life. That's that whole discussion about today becoming the most important day. So don't say this is not for me and don't say this is too hard for me. Trust this God because his pursuit of holiness in your life is even greater than your pursuit of happiness. This is one thing I have seen in my life is that he has overpowered my pursuit of my own happiness through his pursuit of holiness. And my response is simply be, okay, you win. I'll try it your way. And so that's what I want to put in front of you as we begin to journey through this and as we talk about this in our home groups and say, okay, I'm not going to say this doesn't apply to me and I'm not going to say this is too hard for me. I'm going to let God pursue holiness in my life.
Now, before we kind of close with a, with a final thought, just want to open it up to, to questions. Just take a, we're going to do one or two. And Tony, have you got any? You got one? Okay, come on up. And as he's talking these, you may have more. Even though we're only going to take one or two, text them in because some of them we can take in the following week, some of them we can blog about. Okay, so this question is, um, it's particularly directed to, to students or younger people. And it says, why should we keep up a standard that's different from the world and my friends regarding sexuality? And so I, I'd temper that a little bit. Maybe like, you know, for students that are in a culture where that thinks very differently about what the Bible actually uh, uh, says about our sexuality and relationships. What does a young person, what does a student say to others that are thinking so differently than this? How do they respond? Okay, that's good. Um, and, and I would say this is not just a question for students because all of us are surrounded by people in a culture who think very differently than some of the things that, and we haven't even gotten into it yet, but we will. Um, there's two sides of this. There are aspects of God's word that maybe you've heard me say this before that are, very, that are universally appealing and universally offending. But it just depends where you live and what culture and what time you live in. So for example, the scriptures teaching on sex, our culture finds to be very outdated and prudish and silly. But it finds the scriptures teaching on turn the other cheek when your enemies or you don't strike back to be very progressive. We have kind of an anti-war sort of culture in the West. So we would find the teaching on, Jesus teaching on turn the other cheek to be very progressive, but the teaching on sex to be very, you know, oppressive. You go to a Middle Eastern culture or a South Asian culture where I'm from, those people would find the Bible's teaching on sex, even if they don't follow it, at least publicly, to be, oh yes, that's proper. But they would find the teaching on turning the other cheek to be offensive because it's an honor-shame culture. If your enemy strikes you, you have to strike them back. You can't turn the other cheek, that's weakness. That's shame. You're bringing shame on your family if you don't stand up and fight. And so what we start to see is, wait a second, God's truth is universally appealing, but in different ways. And so some cultures and some people and some aspects, oh yeah, that makes total sense to me, so I'll do that. Other stuff, this doesn't make any sense to me, so I'll reject it. But the fact that it's different in every parts of the world tells us maybe we don't actually know what's best. So there are times when I can point to things in culture, like for example, the over 50% of students, Canadian students, you know, who have been presumably generally sexually free based on most of the studies we've seen who are experiencing epic levels of depression. I can point to that and say, you know what, I don't know if this sexual ethic is working for our culture. And so that's one thing we can say is, is that really working? Uh, some studies out of the US were saying like in the 1960s, I think one in 20 were graduating with an STD. It's now one in four. And some of these STDs, people are thinking like, oh, students think, oh, the worst thing that can happen is I can get pregnant. No, that's the best thing that could happen. The worst thing is that you get an STD that means you'd never be able to get pregnant. Or you'd have to have surgery. And I just look at that and go, I don't think that that, that, that you know, I'm not a huge economist, but that vector is kind of pointing in the wrong direction. <laughs> one in 20 to one in four. And I think it's actually worse than one in 20, but I'm underquoting because I can't remember the stat. I know one in four is accurate. That's crazy. So on one level, I can say, look, if people say, oh, why would we do that? Well, because it's kind of hurting us. <laughs> we have higher levels of divorce rate, higher levels of STDs, higher levels of depression amongst you know, the most sexually free in the culture. On one level, I think, rationally speaking, I don't think it's working for us. And yet, there is a sense in which the other side 
it, God's law on one level will not make sense to our society. Like there are aspects of God's law that you cannot just say, oh yeah, this makes sense, trust me. There are parts of it that look like it doesn't make sense. That's why it comes from a faith standpoint. I don't really think our job as Christians is to tell the rest of the world what to do. I don't expect somebody to have the sexual ethic of the Bible if they don't trust the God of the Bible. If they don't see God as Father, as a God who loves them, who wants the best for them, they're never gonna follow this. Our job is to follow it ourselves and say, let me show you a different way. And that may mean that we experience things like, you know, people calling his names or making fun of us that we're prudes or whatever it is. But over time, you know, what I've found is that we end up being able to live with less regrets. And regrets is what kills you over the long run. And so there's aspects of this that will seem to make sense and others of it that won't. <laughs> and our job is not to tell people what they should do, but to say, here's why I've chosen to do what I'm doing. Ultimately, it's because you trust God. Say, I trust his plan for my life. Okay. If you have more questions, please keep them coming in. And uh, even after the fact, email me too, because some of the stuff we'll blog about is just some of the questions that are coming in on that. Let me end with this. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're a married person and you're in your marriage and you feel like, yeah, things are going okay, but they could get a bit better. Maybe you're struggling with something in your marriage that is proving to be difficult for you. Maybe you feel like your marriage is on its last legs and, and you don't know how this is gonna survive. Or maybe you just feel like that today. <laughs> maybe you're a single person, maybe post-marriage. You're thinking, now I don't know what to do with all this. I have some regrets and thoughts about that. I'm reflecting more on my past. I'm not sure what to do. How do I live as a single person now? Maybe you're a single person with a lot of years in front of you and you don't know what's coming. But maybe we can all agree, wherever we're at, that, hey, pursuing my own happiness isn't quite working for me. And I'm ready to try something else. I give you this prayer to pray, and it's actually a prayer you can pray about anything in your life. If God is really trying to pursue holiness, here's the prayer. God, I need you to show me how blank is making me holy. And I put a few suggestions there. Maybe you're experiencing conflict in your marriage, and you've been so frustrated at it, maybe because you mistakenly thought, um, and it's disturbing your level of happiness, and you never said it out loud, but ultimately that's what you're feeling. It's like, I'm bothered about this because I'm unhappy. God, show me how you're using conflict in my marriage to make me holy. God, show me how you're using sexual frustration. Whether you're a married person and your sex life hasn't materialized the way you want it to or maybe it isn't right now, or you're a single person who's trying to remain abstinent until you get married, unless you get married, until you have a level of frustration sexually about that. God, show me how you're using this to make me holy. God, show me how you're using loneliness, whether you're married or not. That is another myth of marriage that is gonna cure my loneliness. So maybe some of us are feeling lonely within marriage. Some of us are feeling lonely because we're not in a marriage. God, show me how you're using this to make me holy. Unanswered prayer, I say unanswered because all prayers are answered, but maybe just not in the way we want or the time we want. And so there's stuff we've prayed about our marriage or for a marriage or where we're at in our life as a single person if we've determined, no, I'm not gonna get married. And maybe it just seems like, hey, these prayers aren't coming through. I need you to show me how you're using even unanswered prayer to make me holy. and then waiting, which is a reality for all of us in different stages of life. That this prayer becomes on our lips regularly. It begins to change the way we see everything that's happening in our lives. God, I need you to show me how you're using this to make me holy. And to trust that that is his plan for your life.
I read to you earlier that quote about God being the happy God. I truly believe that if God is ultimately happy and ultimately holy, that those things are connected in him. And the more that we pursue his plan for us to become holy, the more we will actually experience the happiness we're desperately trying to get. And so I wanna leave you with this as a quote from C.S. Lewis. I've, I've used it before, but I think it's such a reminder of this, of what God's ultimate plans are. And he's talking about our pursuit of pleasure. He says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. God has a plan to bring you out into a wide open space, to bring you that sense of fulfillment with no regrets, to reach back into your past and heal those things that you cannot now change. But it requires us to let him lead, to let him pursue his agenda of holiness in our lives. And it begins with us just saying, God, open my eyes so I can actually see this is what's happening. So I just wanna pray for you. If you just bow your heads, now invite the worship team to come up and lead us in response. God, you know that we are such frail creatures. We have a hard time believing and trusting. I pray for any of us who are going through a dark night, a dark valley, whether as a married person or as a single person, no matter what age or life stage we're in, maybe there is darkness around us, there's a heaviness, and we're trying to trust you, but it's so hard. Open our eyes to see that you are with us through the valley of the shadow of death. That you are actually doing something and that we're not gonna doubt in the dark what we knew to be true in the light. For those of us who are uncertain about our future in this regard, help us trust you. That to know your, your ways are not just higher and different, they're better. For those of us that are facing pressure to cave in to the way our culture thinks, the way people around us think, the way maybe even someone we're in a relationship, the way they think. Give us courage to believe in the love of a God we can't see. Give us courage to wait it out and know that in the long run, your way of holiness is a better way. It actually leads to happiness. And so give us eyes to see, give us faith, give us courage, give us a knowledge of your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Sometimes it's helpful for, to do this. I felt like one of these benedictions is one of those ones where we're like, God, please just give this to us. My, my blessing is that over the next few weeks, and maybe even already happening today, that, that God would give you three things that we all need. First, healing that you would reach out to him and say, God, heal me in these past areas of regrets. Heal me in things that have been done that can't be undone. Heal me in the hurts in my heart. And that he would give that to you, that this would be a season of healing in your life. And secondly, that he would give you strength. 
where you have felt weak, where you have felt like giving up, where you have felt like you have lost hope, that you would find strength, not in an abstract way, but physically, literally, to carry through on the things you know you need to do. Strength to reverse old patterns. And thirdly, that he would give you his peace, (laughs) that whatever has been a raging storm in your life, maybe that's very visible on the outside or just inside that nobody even knows about, that you would hear the voice of Jesus saying, be still to you. And that in Christ, healing, strength, and peace would be yours. Did you receive that? Amen. Please be seated.